I'm excited that we're uh, starting a new series. Uh, the book of James is a great one. Who I think a few of you probably, who really likes the book of James? There's a few people who like it. I think, uh, I meet a lot of Christians, I think they like the book of James. Um, who likes the book of James because it gives you a kick in the bum? Frankly, good. Um, yeah, I think it sounds about right. It's a very challenging book. It's a book about how life is supposed to be lived under Jesus. Um, and I'm excited about it. Um, before we get into the book itself, though, I'm actually going to spend about half the sermon today telling you about the background of it. I think it's important to do this occasionally so we get a feel for what the Bible's about as a whole, and I think it's actually really encouraging and helps us uh, read the, the Bible more intelligently uh, and just more switched on as to what's going on. Um, so the book's called James. It was written by a guy called James. That's why. Uh, he wrote it in about 44 AD, so that's about 10 years after Jesus was killed. So this is one of the very earliest pieces of like letter that we have that's a Christian letter uh, that's in the New Testament. It's one of the really early ones. Um, which James wrote it though? Um, there's actually at least three Jameses in the New Testament. Jesus had 12 disciples, two of them were called James and neither of them wrote this book. <laughs> uh, just to be confusing. Which James is this? Uh, well, this G- James uh, was one of the most important leaders in the early church. Uh, the gospel started out in Jerusalem and it travelled outwards from Jerusalem. This James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. That's who, that's who he came to be. Uh, so he's a really important no- guy. He was well known. He was well respected by all the people in Jerusalem and beyond, Christian and non-Christian alike. Very well thought of guy. Um, and so he's known as James the Just or even James the Righteous. He was really highly thought of. Now James's story of becoming a Christian though is pretty extraordinary. Uh, his upbringing made it very, very hard for him to accept Jesus for himself. Very hard, I think. Uh, he thought Jesus was a pretty ordinary guy who unfortunately had gone a, a, more than a little bit mad when he started talking about all this Son of God stuff, right? When Jesus was in his, in his early 30s. James's life changed forever in 33 AD, though, because James's older brother was killed by the Romans. Uh, awfully, it was really awful uh, what happened to James's brother um, and just over a decade after that event changed his life forever, he became Christian he was the head of the church in Jerusalem uh, especially changed his mind about his brother when his brother didn't stay dead rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and succeeded the right caught on James's mother's name was Mary James's father's name was Joseph this is Jesus' kid brother that wrote this letter. That's who James is. Uh, James of Nazareth, son of Joseph, Joseph and Mary. So when Jesus went public with his ministry, teaching healing and claiming just enormous authority for himself, uh, his family was not impressed. Uh, I'll just show you on the screen here. It's amazing to think about who James is. It says, uh, Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. So he's really famous because of his miracles and stuff. When his family heard about this, They went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers, James is there, arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call Jesus. A crowd was standing around him and told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, is my brother and my sister and my mother. His family was not impressed. His local town was not impressed. He's a little bit later. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, 
He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, saying, where did this man get these things? He has such authority. Uh, What's his wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Incidentally, Judas there isn't Judas Iscariot. Uh, You know him as Jude, and he also wrote a book of the New Testament later on. Um, It's worth noting, just a side point, um, the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus, but she didn't say a virgin. (laughs) She was married, and it actually would have been immoral for her to stay a virgin because she's married to a guy. And it's just proof right there. Uh, Jesus has brothers and sisters. Um, Some people who have a lot invested in the idea that, uh, because of tradition, invested in the idea that Mary kept being a virgin her whole life, will try and say it's his cousins or something. Uh, It's it's not. (laughs) The word is brothers. It always means brothers. There's a different word in Greek for cousins. Side point. doesn't matter. Well, it matters if you don't want to believe that Mary kept being a virgin, which she didn't. Anyway, James wasn't sold on Jesus' ministry. But then a decade after he dies on a cross, James is a prominent leader and authority on Christian teaching alongside Jesus' apostles. So have a look at the book of James and look what he says in verse 1. It's amazing when you know who he is. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus and friends, I have two brothers, younger brothers. One of them's over there. Just think for a moment. Literally, what is it going to take for them to believe in the glorious Lord Matthew? Like, like in all seriousness, think it through. What, what's going to take to convince them that I'm sinless, that I'm the Son of God, that I rule the world, and that I should be worshipped? Because that's what's going on here. That's what James, that's the change that James had in his mind about who his brother was. It's extraordinary. He thought his brother was sinless. He grew up with him. He thought his brother was the Lord of all things. That took some pretty big convincing. It's one of those really interesting proofs of the truth of Christianity that his brother became a really prominent Christian leader. And he calls himself, I'm a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It literally means slave. I'm a slave of my brother Jesus. I'm just a slave of Jesus, his brother, (laughs) because he's the Lord and I'm just a mere servant of that guy. Extraordinary. James is just Jesus' humble servant, even though it was his brother he grew up with. How committed was he to Jesus? How convinced was he? Well, Christians were persecuted really early on in Jerusalem when Christianity rose. And James stuck around in Jerusalem to leave the church while others fled. And this letter is actually him writing to Christians who have, some of them will have fled and left to other places. And he's writing to them to help them live the Christian life. But he stayed and helped the church and led for about 20 years. Then in 62, the year 62, James died Excuse me, for his belief in Jesus. Uh, the Jewish high priest, Ananus, had James illegally stoned to death. Uh, the historian Josephus was 25 years at the time, and his, his account of it tells us really clearly. Here it is. It says, Ananus assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some of his companions. And when he'd formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them over to be stoned. And they were killed by having big rocks thrown at them, which is horrible. Um, James died for his belief that his brother was the son of God. He was utterly convinced. It goes on to report, he wasn't a nut job, James. It goes on to report the citizens of Jerusalem respected James so very much 
that they petitioned the king for how terribly unjust this was and actually had that high priest removed from office as a result. Jerusalem was in uproar about this event. He was a well-respected man in his society and yet he died for his belief that his brother was the son of God. I just think it's great. It's amazing. Now, second thing, who's he writing to? Have a look at verse 1 again. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Here's a bit where I'm going to shock you. James is writing to Jews. He's writing to Jewish Christians. If you're not a Jew, that's like that's not initially who he's writing to. Uh, this is a point that's going to shock you. It has a lot to do with us, this book, actually, as non-Jews. Uh, but I want to share something today with you about the nature of the New Testament that you won't likely have thought about before very much. Um, you see, as we read the Old Testament, you know, the bit before Jesus, we recognise it's pretty foreign and it sounds like it's about other people. It's about these Israelites and the nation of Israel and the Jews and that sort of thing. And God did great things for them and saved them and made great promises for them. And so you read it and go, oh, this isn't about me. And then you come to the New Testament and it's all about God's promises to Jesus' church. And you go, I'm a follower in Jesus. I'm part of his church. It's about me. It's addressed directly to me. And so that bit's not about me. This bit is. Uh, you actually got to be not so fast on both points. Um, the Old Testament is about Israel, but it's actually about Jesus. It's part of the Christian Bible. It's a Christian book. And so we should be confident it's about Jesus, and Christians should benefit from reading it because it's about Jesus. But we often make the opposite mistake with the New Testament because we assume it's almost directly about us, and that actually bypasses some of the really important things it's got to say, some of the things it goes on and on about, actually. Here's my big claim. The New Testament is just as Jewish as the Old Testament. Just as Jewish. The New Testament is not about me. It's not about a salvation that my people group has a natural claim on. The New Testament is about how God finally brought his promised salvation to his people Israel through the promised King of Israel, Jesus Christ. That's what the New Testament is about. And the extraordinary surprising thing that happens in the New Testament, and it is surprising, they were really shocked about this, was that God in his mercy offers this thoroughly Jewish salvation to outsiders too and draws them in. And that's the surprising bit. Everybody knows that the king of the Jews is the king of the Jews. Why should I have... I'm, I'm not a Jew. Why do I care? Well, there are lots of reasons because it's, uh, it's a big part of the Bible. I care for that sake. Uh, here's another reason. If you engage in ministry to um, Aboriginal people, to Indigenous Australians, I think you'll find before long you'll have somebody say to you something like, uh, Christianity is a white man's religion. And, and that'll be quite an unattractive thing to them, and I think fair enough, especially the way Aboriginal people have been treated by a lot of English Australians uh, in their history. I think fair enough. You want to maintain your Aboriginal identity, and that's really important, and it should be. However, Christianity is not a white man's religion. Christianity is the true and fulfilled Jewish religion. And both of those words are really important, true and fulfilled. It's true because Jesus really is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the long-awaited, long-expected descendant of David who would rule everything for his people Israel. For a Jewish person to reject their own king is to reject true Judaism, because that's what Christianity is. It's also fulfilled, though, because Jesus is the answer to all of God's promises to save his people and bless the world through him, through, through Israel. Um, he's... Jesus is the answer to all those promises. And so Christianity is just as foreign to Anglo-Saxon culture 
as it is to Chinese culture, as it is to Aboriginal culture, to all those things, because it's a Jewish thing. It's, it, it, it's, it's their king that we follow. And so for non-Jewish people like me to become Christians, what it means is seeing the falsehood and futility of the gods and idols of our culture and going, those Jews have an extraordinary king. He is the son of God. He offers salvation. I want that king. I want what he has. I want, the, I want what the Jews have, what their rightful inheritance is. I want to share in the inheritance of Abraham's children. And by God's grace, Jesus, king of the Jews, invites us in. It's wonderful. It's an extension of God's grace to us. See, friends, the point is, Judaism wasn't replaced by a non-Jewish thing called Christianity. Judaism was fulfilled by the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and so Jews are called to submit to them, but we non-Jews get invited into this amazing salvation we never had any claim on. We never had any claim on it. It's not my rightful inheritance, but it's offered to me, and it's wonderful. See, even the title of our faith, it's Christianity, right? Christ, that's a Jewish title, King of the Jews. That's what it means. We're, we're Christians. We follow the Jewish king. A Jewish man is God's son and will be God's son for all eternity. will be Jewish for all eternity. We'll, I worship a Jewish man as a Christian. That's what it means. you just got to look at that and go, doesn't Israel have the most extraordinary place in God's plans? It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. That from their race came the Lord of all things, God's own son. Now, I want you to get a taste of the Jewishness of the New Testament because when you look for it, it's everywhere. So as you do your personal Bible reading of the New Testament, keep your eye out for it. It's everywhere. Um, I'll give you a few examples real quick. I didn't get rid of that one. Um, Here's Jesus. Jesus sent his 12 apostles out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or into any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. See, Jesus' purpose, to save Israel. Gentiles are addition to saving Israel. They're brought into what Israel rightfully has. Um, Jesus did appoint the Apostle Paul to be the, uh, the Apostle to the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews like me. Um, but if you read his story, even he preached to Jews first and then to Gentiles second because it's their king after all. And so in his story, that's what he did. So a famous bit from Paul that a lot of you will know, don't ignore the second bit that you always ignore. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's their king after all. If you read Romans 11, and you're interested in this topic, you should read Romans 11. Salvation is pictured as a big tree. And the tree, the natural branches, the Jewish people, and they're joined to the tree with their salvation, and Jesus is the tree. But as people, Jewish people reject their Messiah, the branches are pulled off. And foreign branches are grafted in. That's us. We're joined into what the Jews rightfully have. That's what the picture is. And you see it in some really surprising places. Who likes the book of Ephesians? I think some of you like the book of Ephesians. Check out what Ephesians said. When he says we and you, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. In Jesus, we, Jews, were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of his will. In order that we, Jews, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, his Gentiles. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, Jew and Gentile, until, uh, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Even more explicitly in the next chapter, it's just wonderful. Therefore, remember... 
this is to us. Remember you formerly who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, Jewish people. Remember, verse 12, that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near to the, through the blood of Jesus. I want what the Jewish king has to offer and I get it. Isn't that great? It's really encouraging, I think. Now, first Bible reading. Turn to the uh, book of Galatians because I'm not going to put it up on the screen. Um, and I want, to, I want you to notice, this is a background for James, because Christianity is Jewish through and through, and everybody's aware of this. And the thing that's surprising them is that Gentiles, non-Jews, are turning to Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit and, and believing in him. Turn to the book of Galatians, 1,167. 1, and I just want you to notice a couple of things here. So we're talking about our guy, James. Um, Paul tells the story of how he met the other apostles. Paul was converted in unique circumstances, we'll say. Uh, leave it at that. Um, and he hadn't met the apostles yet. And so eventually he did. Verse 18, chapter 1. It says, um, After three years of being converted, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter the apostle, and I stayed with him 15 days. Just got to, get, got, got to know the guy. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. There's our guy. I show you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Now, he goes on later and says, 14 years after this, he comes back to Jerusalem and a really important meeting happens. Come down to verse 8 of chapter 2. It says, For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, the Jews, was also at work in me, Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles. That's us. James, there's our guy who wrote this book, um, Cephas, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, were partners in the gospel, when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, to the Jews. All they asked that we, was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been very eager to do all along. Two things. You notice uh, the first name in that list of three very important men in early Christianity, the first name is James. Probably because they're in Jerusalem and James is the boss. He's the head of the church there, even ahead of the apostles, which is a, a, a pretty big deal. Uh, the second thing I want you to notice, though, the main thing, what are their job descriptions? You've got James, Peter, John, go and preach the gospel to Jewish people, mainly. If, if you talk to Gentiles as well, they did talk to Gentiles as well, but mainly your focus of your mission is Jewish people. And Paul and your mates go and preach to non-Jews. Now, all of those men wrote books in the New Testament. All of them did. It is no fluke. If you read 1 and 2 Peter, it is the most Jewish-sounding thing you've ever read <laughs> because that's the type of people he was talking to. John's Gospel, it's explicitly Jewish. The point of John's Gospel is these things are written so that you may know that the Messiah is Jesus. That's, a, that's trying to convince Jews that their king is really Jesus. And 1 and 2, 3 John, very like that as well. Now, our guy James here, if you turn back to the book of James... Uh, who should we be expecting he's writing to? Jews. That's his, his mission focus. And I'm sure there's Gentiles listening in on this letter because it's a cyclical letter. It's, a, it's, it's one that does the rounds kind of thing. And, and, and Gentile believers like us hear it too and are included in it too. But the focus is on Jewish people because it's their king, they're serving, that we're serving. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 2. 
uh, and there's just hints of Jewishness all through it. 2 verse 2, it says, suppose a man comes into your meeting, uh, the word there, meeting, is synagogue. It's just little things like that. It's, it's, it's a very Jewish letter. He's speaking to Jews uh, and encourage them to follow Jesus as they are in a world that doesn't follow Jesus. Now, what difference does it make? All this stuff I've just gone on about, you're going, this is, why bother? What, what's, what does that matter? Uh, what difference does it make to you reading the Bible? Well, actually, it makes very little difference in some ways. Uh, you and I, Jew and Gentile, are equal participants in what Jesus has to offer now by God's grace. Uh, everybody who trusts in Jesus has salvation and is a Christian. But it actually makes a massive difference to our perception of the faith. Friends, we've been made the beneficiaries of a salvation that actually belongs to another people group. Another people group. It's not naturally my... Jesus of Nazareth is a foreign king. Why should he have anything to do with a person like me who isn't even one of his people? It's his mercy that he wants to, that he invites me in, that he invites you in. He owes us nothing. He gives us everything. I just want to say, I think that should give us a special kind of respect for Jewish people, by the way. I think it should. It should give us a special kind of respect for Jewish people. Uh, it should also lead us to long that more of them would recognise that Jesus is their Messiah and they should turn to him. Because he is. He's the real Messiah. He's the one they should turn to. And the Bible has a whole lot more to say about that. But we're getting away from the book of James by a long way. So let's get into the book of James. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, who's he writing to? To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. 12 tribes of Israel hadn't existed for 500 years. They'd gone into exile. Their identity had never really been restored. That's the, that's the identity of the old Israel. Calling Christians the 12 tribes means he's saying, you guys are the true Israel. This is true fulfilled Judaism, true fulfilled Israelite religion. Why? Because you're gathering around King Jesus, the coming deliverer who saves his people. But they're also scattered See, scattered among the nations. They live here, there, and everywhere. Um, it's the word the Old Testament uses of Israel when they're in exile and they're among foreign nations. And it's really hard to follow God when you're in another culture that tells you to do all sorts of things that are anti-honouring your God. Um, but they were called in exile while they were scattered to faithfully live God's way whilst they waited for that great day when God would come to rescue them and bring them home. And it's the same situation we're in the same situation Christians have been in since Jesus ascended into heaven. Our home is not here in this time. We look forward to our home in the coming kingdom of God. And so James is going to want to instruct us, Jew and Gentile alike, what it takes to be strong in the faith and to grow in the faith and to go the distance in the faith in a world that's so hostile and alien to Christianity and to living God's way. That's what the book's about. That's what his burden is as this letter goes out to faraway places like outside Palestine and even Oran Park. Now, one of the values we have as a church is that we want to be enduring disciples of Jesus. We want to be people who continue trusting and serving Jesus right to the end when God's kingdom comes, because that's where salvation is. Now, have a look at verse 12. Uh, James had the same value. He thought enduring was a pretty good value for a church too, which I'm happy about. Um, Verse 12. um, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I like presenting things visually, so let's do that. Uh, Here's me. 
uh, the finish line is when Jesus returns or when I die, whichever comes first. And the opposite, I need to run the race, continuing to follow Jesus all the time in between till I get to that day. On the other side of that line is the crown of life, eternal life, the salvation Jesus offers. And so that's what we're running towards. The Christian life is kind of like a marathon race. And we're running towards where salvation is by continuing to follow Jesus and grow in him. Um, The book of James is going to have a lot to say about how you face the trials and difficulties that get in the way. And this passage today says, it's tremendous opportunity for spiritual growth when you face trials, but there's also great danger. There's both sides of it. He's going to want to talk about the positive side is first, and I think a lot of us like this passage. If we've read it before, it's, it's one we've perhaps puzzled over. Um, have a look at verse two to four. It says, uh, "Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete." not lacking in anything. Again, let's just map out the logic. It's a very logical thing to say. He's saying, here it is, there's trials, they lead to perseverance when you face them well, and perseverance leads to you growing to maturity in Jesus, being complete, being the type of person Jesus wants you to be, in character, like Jesus. It doesn't sound like a pleasant experience, though, does it? Hard stuff. It's not a pleasant experience. Often it's very unpleasant, very difficult, uh, and that's kind of the whole point. If you look at our original diagram, trials are the things that push back on you going towards salvation. They're the things that make it difficult. What he's saying is, it is unpleasant, but under God, these these trials are actually spiritual weight resistance training. Because what happens when you're heading a certain way, you're pushing a certain way, and you face resistance, and you keep pushing back? You get stronger. Like the trial's there, it's pushing against me while I'm running that way and it goes away and another one comes and you do reps like that enough times and you get spiritually stronger. That's, that's what he's saying. As you continue in Christ under great opposing force, you grow stronger in him. Now, I think we're always puzzled. Uh, verse 2, it says, consider it pure joy. Be happy that you're facing really, really hard things is what it sounds like it's saying. It's not saying that. It's saying you need to think of it that way. James isn't saying, read it carefully, he isn't saying, feel this. He's saying, think this. Consider this. Think of it this way. Change your thinking, not your feelings. Consider is a thinking word. Recognise, it's like talking about exercise, isn't it? You recognise exercise is good for you even though it hurts. Recognise that the trials are good for you even though it hurts. That they'll grow you in Christ. Regard them as joyful, good things that are for your good and that under God will be used for your good growing in Jesus. Now, I know many of you are facing uh, all kinds of difficulties and struggles in life, and it's just horrible. Uh, Some of them in particular are spiritual difficulties, and that can be especially difficult. Uh, Part of getting through that is talking, talking to God, talking to others who can help you too. But the first thing I want to say is you need to talk to yourself. I think that's what this is saying. I'm serious. Talk to yourself. You need to learn to preach to yourself when times are the most hardest. You need to say to yourself, by his spirit, God is going to use this experience to strengthen and grow me to maturity in Jesus. And when the harder the time is, the more you need to be able to say that to yourself. Talking to yourself is perfectly natural, normal, healthy. You need to do it for your healthier Christian life. Tell yourself the truth. God is going to use this experience to strengthen and grow me to maturity in Jesus. And when times are hard, you need to tell yourself that more. The other person you need to talk to is God, verse 5. 
What do we do when we lack the maturity to face situations in front of us? Well, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. What it's saying is God really, really, really likes giving people wisdom. He likes teaching them how to live his way and to know how life is supposed to be lived. And that's basically what wisdom is in the Bible. Wisdom is the skill of knowing how to live life well under Jesus. Uh, It's not just Bible knowledge. Uh, Bible knowledge is crucial, it's the foundation, but wisdom is being able to take that formation from reading the Bible and know how to face any situation in front of you with a biblical mindset and make sound judgments of discerning what's right and wrong and what matters and what doesn't matter and just weighing things up really carefully, making sound judgments about what's best in a godly way, not a worldly way. It's about living life well under Jesus, whatever's thrown at you. That's why the next section he starts talking about wealth. You've got to put wealth in perspective. We're not going to talk about that because we're going to talk about it in, in future weeks. But you've got to put wealth in perspective if you're going to be wise. Um, turn to chapter 3, verse 13, and look at how he describes wisdom. He's got a lot to say about it in this book, and we'll get to talk about this properly in a little while, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or something. Who is the wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by their deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. See, it leads you to live well, to to, to, to do good deeds. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, inverted commas, doesn't come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Godly wisdom starts with godliness. It comes with knowing God and knowing how to face all the trials of life in a way that Jesus would want you to. And it's about having the smarts to look at them and know precisely what's needed for this situation, not just in general, this situation, and doing it in a godly way. And God wants you to have wisdom like that if you ask for it. That's what it says. It's a wonderful promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. He gives it. He wants to give it to you. He wants to give you wisdom. It's wonderful. But it's all or nothing. Living God's wisdom means rejecting the wisdom of the world entirely and not thinking you can pick and choose the bits you don't like. And that's the next thing it says. Read verse 6 to 8. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, verse 6 is confusing. Uh, It sounds like it's saying, when you ask, you must not doubt. You need to erase all uncertainty that God will answer that promise uh, from your mind. Um, I think that's a good thing to do, but that's not what it means. Um, The thing that you're not to doubt in this passage is the goodness of God's wisdom. That God's way is good and the world's way is not good. That's the thing you're not to doubt. In fact, you can make it a bit clearer. It's very difficult to translate, basically. You can make it it a bit clearer if you use the word discriminate in the passage. So let me read it again. Discriminate, like cherry-pick between the bits you do and don't like about God's wisdom. When you ask God for wisdom, verse 6, you must believe and not discriminate between the bits you do do and don't like because the one who doubts, the discriminates between the bits he does and doesn't like, is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive God's wisdom... Such a person is double-minded. They want to have it both ways, is what he's saying. You can't do that. You need to choose God's way or some other way. But if you try and do in the middle, your wisdom, your skill at living life is going to be about as stable as moving water. That's what he's saying. 
That means we have to have confidence that God weighs best if we're going to have God's wisdom and ask for it. Uh, What that looks like is holding out in your hands everything you have and saying, please God, I want you to teach me to reorder all these things so they are more wisely directed. And you can't hold back at all. Otherwise, that's double-mindedness. That's what he's talking about. So you have to hold out your aspirations, your time, your priorities, your family, your house, your money, your career, your very life, opening God's hands and saying, please, God, could you turn all this stuff into more wisely, better-directed, Jesus-glorifying life? Please. That's what he's saying. And the stuff you want to tighten your grip on and hold back, that's the double-mindedness he's warning about. You actually have to be able to say to God, I'd love you to have, give me insight in how to do some shocking things that would actually be wiser, even if they're shocking to me. Let's be frank, friends. Too often we come to God with the decisions already made on the big things on a very worldly basis. And at that point, it's too late to ask for wisdom. Uh, At that point, what we actually pray isn't, please, God, give me wisdom to make good decisions. I've already made the decisions. We pray, please, God, please make my my plans succeed, the plans I've already made. What he's saying is, open your plans in your hands, offer them to God, say, can you please use these better? Can you help me think more clearly about what's better than these plans I've made? I want to honour you more. I want to be wiser. And to do that, you really have to trust God. You have to know that his way's the best. Now, just quickly, down in verse 13, I want us to realise there's temptations, there's trials from the outside that uh, like on the screen, the, the things that push back on us and make us stronger in Christ if they're, they're uh, responded to well. Uh, verses 13 to 15 talks about the dangers they present, those same events. Um, the, we call two topics what's actually one in the, in the Bible. Um, we have two words, trials and temptations. Trials are the things from the outside. Temptations are the things from the inside, the things when it grabs our hearts and we want to do it. Um, in Greek, it's the same word the whole way through. Uh, trials and temptations are kind of the same thing but the outside version of it the inside version of it it's a different camera angle and so verse 13 it says when somebody is tempted or trialed it's the same thing but this is the inside version of it same event Uh, when tempted no one should say God is tempting me because God can't be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone but each person is tempted on the inside when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed Then after desire has conceived and gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, friends, if you look at the screen, this thing, a trial that's on the outside that's pushing you back, is for your good. The thing that will kill you is the thing on the inside, evil desires. When the trial on the outside says, here's a good thing to turn away from Jesus, and you do the the hard work of continuing Jesus, find it difficult, that's for your good. When it grabs your heart and you say, you know what, I think I can go with that a bit, that's when you're in real danger. And that's not God's fault. That's our fault. That's our sin. It's the sin we have to continue to deal with day by day until Jesus returns and makes us entirely new. It's the opposite trajectory to God's plans for growing us in Jesus. God wants to grow us in Christ towards the day when we receive the crown of life. That way leads to desiring wrong, leads to sin, leads to eternal death, leads to turning away from Jesus. That's what he's saying. What can we do about that? incredibly awful danger, especially if you know some of the evil desires that still grab your heart. The problem is desiring sinful things. Satan will grab the tiniest foothold in our life that we want to be shaped by the world rather than God's wisdom and he'll slowly, gradually exploit it. And if you want to flee that danger, the only way is to replace it completely. 
just just get rid of it. You just don't entertain it anymore. And you don't sort of sit in neutral land. There's no neutral land. You're running one direction. (laughs) You're tempted in one direction, either towards the kingdom and all that Jesus has to offer or towards sin and death. And so if you want to flee the danger, pray verse 5 and be ready to say yes to whatever God directs you to in godly wisdom. Be ready to pray, I want wisdom from you, God, about how to live that will be faultless and pure, all those things that he was talking about in chapter 3. I want to live a godly life that sinful desires won't be part of and that your Holy Spirit would change me to want that more and more. It's two options. There's always two options. Friends, I think there's only one way to respond to this kind of picture of the Christian life. I take it if you know who Jesus is and you know what he offers, you want the crown of life, you want to respond to trials well and you do not want them to grip your heart and turn you the other way. Let's pray verse 5 together to finish because it's the only way to respond. Before I pray verse 5, please prepare your hearts and clear your hearts of the things that you are holding back. What is it you're holding back that you'd rather live in a worldly way than God's way? Identify and commit it to God now. Loving Heavenly Father, we lack the wisdom we need to honour Jesus as we should and to live skillfully under Jesus. We lack that wisdom and where we have it, we want a whole lot more of it. Please, Father, we know that you give generously to all without finding fault. So we ask you, please give us your wisdom to live in a way that honours you in each of our particular situations in life. And please uh, search us, search our hearts and identify to us by your spirit the things that we are holding back that are really going to stumble us up and trip us up and send us the wrong way. Please give us wisdom to live in a way that honours Jesus. Amen.